Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today you are in for a special treat. If you're interested in what it means to be a deep value investor, how to weigh stock valuations with the quality of the company you're investing in, and how deeply undervalued out-of-favor stocks can offer asymmetric returns, possibly with limited downside and a greater upside, you will want to pay special attention today. Joining us for what I believe will be an enlightening conversation is Tobias Carlyle. Mr. Carlyle is the founder and managing director of Acquirer's Funds, where he serves as portfolio manager of the firm's deep value strategy. He is the author of several books, including The Acquirer's Multiple, which after it was released, hit number one in Amazon's business and finance category. And last but certainly not least, Tobias is the host of one of the best investment podcasts in the podcast universe, The Acquirer's Podcast. And I don't say that lightly, I'm personally a fan and think I've listened to every single episode. Uh, if you listen to just one investing podcast, make it seven investing. But if you listen to two, uh, give Acquires Podcasts a listen, especially the value after hours discussions, uh, which Toby holds with Bill, with Bill Brewster and Jake Taylor every week, which I enjoy immensely. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Greenback. That's at G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. Toby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for a very kind introduction, Matthew. I'm looking forward to chatting. Yes, great. So, Toby, maybe you could just start out by telling us a little about yourself. You know, anyone, listeners might be able to detect a hint of an accent there. <laughs> Why don't you tell us where you're from and how you got started in investing? So, I'm Australian originally. Uh, started working as a lawyer in April 2000, uh, which was right at the very top of the dot-com 1.0 peak and had thought that I was going in to sort of do uh, venture capital was super sexy. Any kind of dot-com type stuff was really sexy at the time. And basically shortly after I showed up, it became kind of clear that that was probably not going to be happening. There wasn't going to be a lot of VC. There was still like dot-coms in Australia. There were like, these are, these are mostly Australian companies that I'm talking about, they're, but they're all the same idea as the ones that in the States, they didn't make any money. They didn't even make any gross margin on the stuff that they sold. They lost money on every single thing they were doing, mostly because they were trying to encourage people to use the internet to buy stuff. So we had this thing called dstore.com, like department store, and it was trying to be an Amazon. And the way that they, they used to send out these vouchers to my dad, because I was, you know, I just, I'd been at school. So dad would give me these things. And basically what they let you do is to buy a book for free through this website. And so I used to go in and find the most expensive book from America that I possibly could on investing, like the obscurest thing I could find and then use this voucher to buy these things. So they were losing, you know, 50 Sounds bucks. Sounds like a great them. business model. Yeah, it's a great business. Yeah. So I uh, started working, expecting to do that stuff, which I personally thought was super sexy. I wanted to be involved in that stuff too. And uh, the market collapsed and it turned into, rather than sort of being a capital raising environment, it turned into a mergers and acquisitions environment. So I started doing M&A as a lawyer and uh, these little dot coms, there were quite a few that had listed and raised a lot of cash, but were burning cash. Started getting approaches from these guys who'd been corporate raiders in the eighties. They're all sort of famous in Australia. And uh, when they got approached, they'd be trying to get control and I could never work out why do these guys want these businesses? Like you can, they're losing money 
And of course, it's because they've, um, they've, they've raised $20 million. They're burning like five or 10 a year. But if you stop the cash burn, then you've got this cash pile that you can then go and use that to buy other businesses. Liquidate it if you want, get the cash back and get a, get a quick return. So I thought that's a really interesting strategy. By that time, I had read security analysis, read the original version of security analysis because I had this friend. He's like, you got to go and get the original. Like that's how you... It's better and, than the uh, reprints. <laughs> well, as I've as I've discovered, it's like this statement of your philosophy, which one of the <laughs> versions of security analysis you prefer. And it's kind of like this the original one is written just after the Great Depression. And so there's a lot of like deep value, net net liquidation, early activism kind of discussed in it, even though a lot of it's about railway bonds and valuing bonds. It's very, very hard going. So I um read the chapters in there on liquidation value, found the old net-net ratio and went and did a few valuations on these things. I wasn't allowed to buy anything because I was a lawyer and you can't have a conflict. But I thought if this ever happens again, that the market crashes and these things come out again, I'm going to go and try and buy these things. And it took until 2000 and sort of late 2008. And by that stage, I'd worked in the States for a while in San Francisco. I was doing tech M&A in San Francisco for some big, companies just bolting on little acquisitions and I'd gone back to Australia to work in a telecommunications company as their general counsel listed telecommunications company that had dark fiber and data centers and a peering exchange um, and built a subsea cable. So it had all of the, it was like genuine kind of telecommunications infrastructure with some layers on top of that, but we were much, much closer to the infrastructure end than the managed service. end. we, we sold to the guys who are the managed services. And so that, that business got a bid, um, got sold. I made a little bit of money and I kind of had an opportunity to work out what I wanted to do. And I thought I want to be a, uh, I want to be an investor. I want to be this kind of more deep value kind of investor. So as the market collapsed, I started working with this guy who was an activist. He's sort of a reluctant activist in the sense that he would, he, he looked for undervalued asset situations with a catalyst is how he described it. And so he'd try to find something trading for much less than it was worth where there was a pretty certain return in the, in the not too distant future. And then if the return for whatever reason, management kind of bungled it or didn't deliver the return, then he'd go activist and kind of compel them. And it included like sending letters, taking them to court, standing up in general meetings. Like it was real activism. So it was real nuts and bolts um, stuff. And it was fascinating to learn that. Then uh, my, my girlfriend at the time was who I'd met in San Francisco was American. We wanted to get married, want, likely to have kids. So she wanted to come back and be closer to her mum and dad in Los Angeles. I really like LA. So we moved back and, uh, and that's sort of how I got back to the States. And since then I've started a firm, launched a fund called the Acquirers Fund, which is long short, basically worked out that I don't have the personality for activism. I don't really want to harass people or right. stand up at meetings right. or right. take them to court too much, uh, too much kind of mental energy expended on that stuff. But I thought you can probably identify these are the targets that I would, would hold. So I started out that way as I've gone along, I've sort of, I've become increasingly uh, a sort of quality at an unreasonable price investor is kind of the way that I describe it. Okay. I don't really like necessarily growth and we can talk about why uh, I sort of tend to not pay for it. But, but what I'm looking for is very cash rich balance sheets, very solid operating earnings and cash flows. I want management that's alive to the fact that 
the company's undervalued and doing something about it, which typically means buying back stock, which I think is a very strong signal. So those are the kind of things to look for free cash flow, cash on the balance sheet, because those are businesses that can weather whatever crisis they're coming from. And then on the other side, I tend to short stuff that has very junky balance sheets, negative free cash flow. So they're burning cash and they're issuing stock to stay alive. And all of those signals over time, I think should help outperform the market. And that's kind of what I do now. Gotcha. So you used a, I want to get into your, your fund strategy more, but first I would like to just start off with a, like maybe a bit of a higher level uh, discussion. You used a term there and I've heard you use it plenty of times, but for uh, people who don't know what, when you say net net, like explain what that means. So the, this is the old Graham uh, formulation. So the, the idea that Graham sort of the proof that value has some meaning to stock market investing because it can feel like you're trading pieces of paper back and forth. What's the tether to the intrinsic value? Why does intrinsic value matter at all? And Seth Kleiman dealt with this in his book and he said, at a liquidation level, it becomes very material. It, it's a real number because you can often you can buy these things at a dollar in the market and they might have two or $3 in liquidating value. And if they're liquidated, you can be paid out and you can double or triple your money over the, over a period of time. And that's often, that's the challenge that you've got 12, 24, 36 months of sitting in there, but it's a very certain return. It's just a matter of how long it takes to get the money back out. So net net was Graham's sort of rough proxy for calculating the liquidating value. And he said, what you look for is the net current asset value. And that's, um, cash on the balance sheet, the inventory, uh, payables, and then you can, and receivables, sorry, uh, netting out all of the liabilities of a business. And then that residue, you compare that to the market capitalization. If the market capitalization is two thirds or less of that residue, then you can put the transaction on. And the reason it's two thirds or less is if your calculation is correct, you make a 50% gain by, by buying in that sort of, by buying at that price. There've been lots of tests done over the years. There was one done in 1983 by Michael Oppenheimer, who's a professor, Henry Oppenheimer, excuse me. I hope I'm not getting my Oppenheimers confused. Uh, Oppenheimer, <laughs> Mr. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, Professor Oppenheimer. <laughs> he, he looked at it and he said it had worked for the 25 years from whatever to 1983. And then I looked at it on the 25th anniversary uh, and it worked from the 28th. And basically on the same scale, you make about 30% a year on these positions, there's only a handful of them around. I don't, you can't put very much money into them. You can literally, like, I don't think you, you couldn't run a fund on that basis. You couldn't get a million dollars into them. You might be able to get a few hundred thousand into, into a, like the whole portfolio of these things. Cause they just don't trade, but they're very certain returns. And the downside is, is capped. The problem with them is that they don't come around very often. You don't get them unless there's real pressure, selling pressure in the stock market. So you don't see them in 2019, but you might see them in March, 2020. And if there's another stock market crash, you might see them closer to the low. And so when you see them, you buy them, not a great strategy for running a fund because there's nothing to do in the interim. So I wanted to find a strategy that was sort of the same philosophy. Look at some balance sheet value, look at an operating business, come up with a valuation for the operating business and then buy that. And, and, the catalyst in those instances is activists or private equity firms coming into like financial acquirers. Cause I think if you're paying at a discount to what an informed financial acquirer will pay for a business, then that's sort of your hard deck for what you can return. That's pretty hard intrinsic value that 
should be able to be taken out of the business at some stage, assuming that you don't get the mean reversion, which, which I'm usually relying on. So that's basically the strategy. Gotcha. So now why would you say like for people value investing has now underperformed for, let's say, let's call it 10 years. Um, sure. why, why do you think it's underperformed and why do you think that trend will, will reverse? We should be, we should define our terms a little bit because value investing as any, any Buffett watcher will tell you value is uh, a, a discounted cash flow analysis or something that's more akin to what Buffett does where he looks at this, the core of this business returns, whatever, some number on invested capital. We can take that, that internal engine of return. So it can return 15% on, on invested capital and then we can look at our own investment possibilities and we can see that basically cash yielding virtually nothing, the 10 year, the 30 year. And so then we can come up with a valuation for that engine and then we can try and buy at a discount to that valuation. That's basically how Buffett's doing it. And there's a, there's a return on invested capital element or a growth element if you're doing it through a discounted cash flow or, or something like that. That's sort of the more growthier end of value. At the other end of value is the stuff that I'm trying to do, which is sort of closer to the financial acquirer end. This is where you get the private equity firms and the, and the uh, activists and so on. And that's looking at, uh, let's assume that there's no growth. Let's look at something that's going through a crisis. Assume that we can see it out the other side of the crisis. Uh, and so you'll get earnings mean reverting up. There should be a the discount to the to the intrinsic value should narrow as well. And so that end I call deep value. It's just a more conservative end trying to not pay too much for growth. So that is the end that has really underperformed for the last 10 years. It's not the growthier. Growthier value investors have done fine. And value investors who invest within industries have done fine. The issue has been that when you use these cheaper metrics, it pushes you down towards things that are uh, heavier industry businesses, finance uh, and banking, uh, you're in energy and those sectors and those industries have tended to underperform and you've tended to cluster into those sectors. But if you apply the same uh, approach on an industry distributed or sector equal weighted sector approach, you've done pretty well and value even deep value investors inside industries have done well. They've just across the entire market have lacked exposure to typically information technology, which has been very good. There are periods of time over the full data set. So we've got data going back to 1920 for price to book data, uh, price to cash flow and price to earnings start in early 50s. Throughout the entire period, there are lots of times when this style of value investment underperforms. And the times when it tends to underperforms it are uh, uh, closer to the peak of famous bull markets. So the last really famous one was 1999. And it did really well through the early 2000s. And it did, did pretty well up until sort of mid-2010. Since 2010, it's roughly tracked in line with the rest of the market until about 2015, just using ratios. Sure. Uh, and it's underperformed since then. If you're using like the full suite of things where you check on balance sheet health, quality of the earnings, um, make sure there's no fraud in there. Make sure there's no earnings manipulation. Look for financial distress. All of the things that um, what, what you would call quality uh, measures of a company that kind of kept you up until about with the market until about 2018. 
since the beginning of 2018, it's been pretty miserable for my style of investment. It's sort of, uh, it's down over that period of time and it's massively underperformed the market, which has sort of run up. So the spread now between the performance of the market and this strategy is as wide as it has ever been in the data. I can't find a wider underperformance. Uh, even though there are six other periods of underperformance, it's never been this wide, much wider now than it was in 2000. And uh, it's much, much longer than any other period of time. Naturally, that leads people to ask, has it stopped working? Is it just because it's so easy to find these things? I just think it's one of those things that when uh, the market gets its, the bit between its teeth, it kind of tends to run. This one's run a lot further than I probably would have expected. If you'd asked me a few years ago, I thought we were getting a little bit closer to the end of it, but it's persisted. I sort of think that we're now into the, uh, we've seen the crash. We've seen a bounce. We may see another crash. Uh, so I think we're kind of getting to the end of that period now. Gotcha. So one of the problems I have with, I guess, not a, not a problem, but the, the, one of the questions I'll have with deep value investing is like a lot of times it does feel like when in, in a lot, even often using shortcuts like ratios and, and things like that. But I feel like when you get, when you're looking at deeper value stuff, you get pushed into inferior quality companies. And I told you I was going to ask you about this Warren Buffett quote where he goes, uh, it's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. Uh, how do you, how do you take that quote? Do you disagree or agree with it? Yeah. So the full quote is uh, it's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. And so Joel Greenblatt in his book, the little book that beats the market writes about, he actually means by that in a quantitative sense. So fair company, uh, or sorry, that a wonderful business is something that has a very high return on invested capital, sustainably so. So it can earn sort of an above uh, market. It can earn super normal profits. And the reason it's able to do that is because it has some sort of protection. It has some sort of moat. Because if you just test on the basis of high returns on invested capital, you find that that underperforms the market. Because any time those appear, it either means it's a business at the top of its business cycle or it's a business that has a big target on its back. Because if you're in another industry and you're not making as, enough, as much money and it's adjacent to that one and you can take your skills across, you'll do that. You're going to start attracting entre- competition. 100%. So that, that's pretty well established that micro, uh, microeconomics says that we're going to come in and compete for those profits and that drives profits down. So you see that repeatedly uh, over different periods of time in the market. So he says, wonderful company, high returns and invested capital, fair price. He uses operating income on enterprise value to make that assessment. Buffett talks about that too. It's how he assesses the companies internally. Um, Taken together, uh, that is the magic formula. And so Joel Greenblatt tested that just mechanically buying and selling every 12 months, every period of time, finds it does outperform the market. We tested that in quantitative value, which came out in 2012. We threw everything we could think of to make it underperform and it didn't do that. Uh, we use the academic gold standard of back testing. It, it definitely does outperform the market over the long term. When you devolve it to see what the return drivers are, what you find is that return on invested capital actually leads you to underperform the market. And all of the return plus sum actually comes from the value ratio EBIT on EV, which I call the acquirer's multiple. So I think that what Buffett is saying is that if you can find the moat 
rather than the high return on invested capital. The moat is more important. And so when you think in those terms and you go back and read his letters, you'll notice that he spends a lot of time talking about how you identify a moat. The problem is that anytime it's been tested scientifically by guys like Michael Mobison in particular, Mobison says, what are the uh, predictors of a moat? How do you keep this the, the, the competitive advantage? And it's really hard to predict over a decade of time which companies will be able to persist with that high return on invested capital. So if you can't predict it, I think you're better off kind of ignoring that particular measure of quality and looking at just the value ratios and the, the business health ratios and the balance sheet health ratios. So that's basically what I do. I ignore the... Uh, the things that I think are highly mean reverting or the things that I don't think provide information. And I focus on the things that I have, that I think are more predictive. And, uh, and that's, that's sort of the, the essence of the investment strategy. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with Poland Capital, but they talk a lot about, um, uh, they, they look for companies with economic moats too. And one of the things they look for most is like something that's withstood a, what they call a moat attack. Like when a company has, like a, a, a legitimate company has made a full out effort. Like when Google plus attack wanted to make a social network, like Facebook had, you know, and, and like Facebook's network effect withstood it. Like that would be like an example they gave of like, you know, and once they see that like historical evidence of uh, competitors trying to enter into that market or competitors trying to take out that boat, then they start like uh, they see that as like another like historical evidence. They want to see historical evidence of a moat withstanding attacks and things like that. Well, I think that's a very interesting approach, but I think that I think Facebook's a really good example too, because if you look at what Facebook has done, I think a lot of the attention has gone away from facebook.com to Instagram and they sensibly bought Instagram and they keep a lot of that. But even now I think that the attention is going away from Instagram to TikTok, And I think that there'll be another generation beyond that. And part of that is that kids just don't want to be on the same network as their parents are. They want to get away from where their parents are. So I do think there's going to be a little bit, those platforms are a little bit more faddish. Facebook may avoid that by becoming sort of the white pages of the internet. That's where you're, if you want to know where the guy you went to high school with is now, he's probably got a white pages entry, you know, equivalent on Facebook. So maybe Facebook avoids that. And it does seem to be, uh, it does seem to have withstood that. So maybe Facebook is one that can withstand it. I 100% agree that there are quality businesses out there. I spend a lot of time, uh, not so much on the podcast, but I talk to Jake Taylor about this a lot. He's my co-host on Value After Hours, for folks who don't know. Um, you know. So something like, I think that Google is a phenomenal business. Google is an unbelievably uh a durable business, wholly embedded in most people's lives. If you've got a Gmail account, if you look at YouTube, um, I think that, and you use search, basically you're using Google's products and you couldn't take those out without a material lack of quality to your life, right? Because you have to start paying for those things. And I think that Google makes so much money from those things that it kind of has to disguise how much money it makes by hiring a lot of people, and taking these moonshots because if people saw how profitable it actually was, they might show up to the campus with pitchforks and things like that. And it seems to avoid a lot of the ick factor that Facebook has because Facebook, I think people overshared initially and now they kind of, they don't feel good when they go in there because they've shared too much, but Google knows a lot more about you than Facebook or they probably know the same amount, of, but nobody right. feel, nobody's sure. got that ick factor the about factor Google. Is definitely different for sure. 
So sure. I, would, I would love to own Google. I would love to own those kind of businesses. It's just that uh, I, don't want to pay, I don't want to pay up too much for them. And I th- you know, Google has come into my screen over the years. Um, Microsoft has come in. Uh, Facebook has not, but Apple has come in. They do get cheap on occasion. And those are the times when I plan to buy them. In the interim, I just don't have an opinion. So let's, uh, a slight hypothetical here, but like, let's say uh, in March, like one of those companies got you, whatever you want to pick, Google, Apple, Microsoft, and they enter your screen and, and you bought it for your fund. And as it recovers in price, like, where do you make that decision? Like to, well, now it's at fair value. Do you sell it then? Or do you let it run a little bit? Like, where do you make that decision to sell? I think that the problem for a lot of value investors and particularly deep value investors is that they tend to truncate returns. And this is partly Graham's fault because Graham said the rules for selling are if you've held it for two years or it's gone up by 50%, you should sell. So I've tested that naturally because that's kind of investor that I am. The 50% rule is a terrible rule. That's that, you know, the old uh, stock market saw that you shouldn't pull your flowers and, and let the weeds grow because everybody, if something's down, they feel like they shouldn't, they don't want to crystallize the loss, but if it's up, they want to take the profits, which is exactly the inverse of what you should be doing. If, if something's down and it looks like it's not working, then you should pluck that thing out. If it's up and it's growing, you should let it keep on going. So I, I find it extremely hard. Nobody's very good at selling. I don't think, I, and I find it extremely hard to be a seller too. So it, I've just get here yeah, myself. Theme. Like where yeah. everybody has struggles with selling. Everybody thinks about buying, nobody thinks about selling. And I think part of the reason is that you buy for fundamental reasons if you're a fundamental investor, whether you're at the growth end of the spectrum or the deeper value of end of the spectrum. And then, um, you know, the fundamental story becomes less relevant once the price starts running. And they t- often these things turn into momentum type trades and you, you're trying to sell into momentum. Um, I think that you're kind of truncating your winners. So I think that the best approach is to just sell on a time basis and you either you say i'm not going to sell for less than a year i'm not going to sell for less than two years i'm just going to let it go and see where it gets to and i think that's the the best way of having the biggest winners when i have tested over the full data set that i have i think that most things that are undervalued on average so you know any given stock can do anything but on average it takes about five years for the from the time that you buy it for the excess return to dissipate. The bulk of the excess return comes in the first year. Uh, there's, a, there's a very material amount in the second year and then it sort of gets asymptotically less as you go along and until you get beyond five years, there's no excess return. So I think for value guys, you could hold for five years pretty easily, but the bulk of it is in the first two years. So I sort of use one to two years as my sell rule. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, you know, I, it's different for like managing a fund and, and doing your own like uh, personal, like retail investing. But like what I'll do, like, so I I've had Shopify for, for a long time. And when it hit 300, I remember thinking like, wow, it's, it's really expensive. And I said, you know what? I, I'm just, I just want to hold it because I really like this company and I expected it to come down a lot. And by that time I had been, I did was at 300. I was doing very well in it. And uh, when it hit 400, I trimmed like significantly, um, you know, where I captured my, my more than my cost basis back. And, uh, but I, I, I wanted to keep a small part because I'm like, it, at some point it's, it's going to fall. And I, 
I want this company and awesome. if I sell it, I'm going to, I'm going to lose track of it. You know, right. uh, there, there's companies like I'm just kicking myself because in March, like now I'm realizing how low they got in March. I'm like, man, I, I just missed that. So I didn't want to do that with Shopify because I really like the company. And now it's just like, I don't know if I should, I, I recognize, fully recognize how overvalued it is. And I, I'm still holding on though. I, I just feel like I, I recognize that it, I'm, it will come down. And I know, I don't know if it's smart or not, but it's like, I guess like the coffee can methodology where I, I want to hold this part of it, you know, like, and I, you know, I haven't trimmed it since 400, but you know, I got trimmed it down to where it was like a sm smaller position again, but it's obviously growing. But like, uh, like as a, for retail investing, I really like the, this is a great company and I'm just going to hold on to, I understand trimming at valuations, but like, I like holding on to like a core element of it, I guess. I think when you look at where the very best companies come from, they tend to come from the more expensive side of the market because everybody knows that they're good, good businesses. So Zoom might be a good example of that. Walmart is sort of a classic example. Microsoft is also a classic example where they just, they just, yeah, Amazon, exactly. They never got, cheap at any stage they were always expensive but they were growing so rapidly that um they were always if you bought you sort of over a period of time the valuation kind of caught up to you and then and then went beyond you and so i, I do think that the, if i was to invest that way and i may come up with something that balances i think that at the moment deep value is an incredibly fat opportunity but i think that in the fullness of time value you know value in 2007 uh, was very, very expensive. And by 2014, that value strategy, and it sounds really weird, it, paradoxically, value was more expensive than growth if you're looking at that other side of the market on a forward PE basis. So the value stocks had run so well, everybody had piled into value, it had got very expensive. Jake Taylor wrote this article at the time where he said, this is the worst opportunity set for value in 25 years. And he was absolutely right. And since then, it's sort of materially underperformed. I just didn't think, what is the next step beyond that what's the implication of that and i should have thought i should go and look at the growth stocks which are now unusually cheap and put a position on them so i do plan to do that next time that that opportunity presents itself and the way that i would do it is to work backwards from the way that i do it as a value investor first of all you identify these are all the best fastest growing companies in the market now let's try and find them on uh, let's find the better opportunities inside that cohort rather than these are the cheapest companies in the market. Let's find the higher quality opportunities in that cohort. So I, I think that there's a lot of merit to it. I just think that uh, the easier way for investors is that at the value end of the spectrum, even though it underperforms periodically as it's doing now. Right. Right. Um, I don't want to, I want, I want to move on. I, I wish I could talk to you longer. Uh, but like on your, let's talk about your fund strategy a little bit. Um, on your fund's uh, homepage, you say, we seek a margin of safety in three ways, a wide discount to a conservative valuation, downside protection and a strong liquid balance sheet, and a robust business capable of generating free cash flows. Um, can you just walk us through that a, li a little bit, each of those steps? So the, uh, the first so the balance sheet is pretty straightforward. I just want more cash than debt. Or if there's debt, I want it to be um, not great in relation to the size of the business or in relation to the size of the operating income that the business is generating. So it's got, 
it's got some wiggle room. If the business continues to deteriorate, it can at least finance itself for a period of time. Uh, the discount to intrinsic valuation just means very fat yields on. So I look at the enterprise value to operating income as a proxy for sort of cash flow. I also check that. So I, I value on that basis and then I go and confirm that the cash flows match the operating income over time because that's a, that's a trap. That's a, um, Enron is a good example of that where basically they had very good accounting earnings, but they had no cash flow. And that's because the accounting, the accounting earnings were a sort of figment of the imagination of the management team there. And that's, that's something that you find occasionally in the market where the accounting earnings outstrip the, the cash flow earnings. So I just like to make sure that, um, the cash flow roughly matches the accounting earnings and that uh, we're not paying too much for it. Um, and then we use some statistical measures as well. So I look at, is there financial distress in this business? Is there earnings manipulation? Is there some statistical indication of earnings manipulation in this business? Is there some statistical indication of fraud in this business? And so one of the funny things that they all three are often found together. If you're doing really well, you don't need to manipulate your earnings and you won't be in financial distress. If you find yourself in financial distress, you might want to make yourself look better than you are, which might mean manipulating earnings as a gateway drug to fraud. So often I use this suite of different measures, which are like Benish, M-score, uh, Altman Z-score, all of these sort of statistical measures as a group. And then I just kick out the worst 5% because I think that they are the, um, or, or they're the ones that I want to short. They're the ones that have... Uh, if you've got one of those indicators, like that's one cockroach in the kitchen and there's often more cockroaches in the kitchen. So I'm just trying to catch anything that kind of passes through there. Um, so what have I, have I missed anything? I've got the discount. Uh, to Why discounts and conservative valuation, uh, downside projection, protection and a strong liquid balance sheet in a robust business capable of generating free cash flows. Yeah. So that's, that's based. So the, the, the business capable of generating free cash flows is, um, you know, metal benders and, uh, mines in particular, they don't generate a lot of free cash flow. So they tend to be things that fail to get through my screen, even though that's something that more traditionally deep value guys quite like. I've just learned over the years that what I really like is I like industrial operating businesses that genuinely do make money over time. And I love free cash flow. Everybody loves free cash flow. So that's no, right. no great surprise. But those things together, like I think if you're buying stuff like that, the chance that you lose that the business is just fundamentally broken is pretty low. And I think that they're real businesses, but I just don't like, I, don't, I really don't like mining businesses. I don't like minerals type businesses, but there is a time and a place for them. If they get cheap enough, I'll, I'll buy them. Great. Um, so now if we can, I would just like to go through like a, a few of your, your, your funds holdings just real quick and just walk us through like how, how they meet your criteria. And uh, first, when I was looking at your long holdings, I, you know, I wanted to start with a more vanilla company, uh, one that consumers are familiar with and that is probably relatively easy to understand. And uh, I, I spotted Best Buy. Uh, now, I have a special place in my heart for Best Buy because of uh, uh, its geek squad. Like I've already admitted to you or confessed to you like my technical ineptitude. And so I have a subscription to geek squad support that I have used several times. But what makes this such an attractive investment? Well, it's very cheap. That was the first thing. So it's, it's very, you're not paying a great deal for the operating income that Best Buy is generating. The, the, the retail has been a treacherous environment because Amazon is so strong and 
Buffett himself has said over the years that anytime the new concept in retail comes along, it sort of displaces the old concept, which makes retail very difficult to invest in. At one stage, it was, um, you know, you needed to have your, your well, the, the first department store that, that sort of blew away anything else that was smaller that you could walk inside and sort of go through this. And then you needed the department store needed to be close to a tram stop. If you were further down the street, you kind of missed out on those dollars. And so as the uh, way that we have shopped has evolved, that the marketplace has had to evolve too. Now we do a lot of shopping online and Amazon's a huge beneficiary of that. I think that in the process of that move, though, everybody sold off all retail really hard. Everything has been thrown out. And for good reason, a lot of those have turned out to be um, not able to compete with Amazon for whatever reason. There are some, though, that have managed to compete. And so I think Walmart competes really well with Amazon in, in their own niches. Target competes quite well with Amazon. And I think Best Buy competes well with Amazon for the things that it does. And uh, so basically, it's, it's really not much more complicated than that. I think that it's got um, the balance sheet to get through. I think that it is effectively competing with Amazon. And I just think it's cheap for... Uh, it's cheap where it is when, when, when I bought it. So that's a fairly new acquisition in the fund. Um, I think that that might be one that we picked up. We've either picked it up this quarter or the, the preceding quarter. Uh, they, and they, I mean, I know this goes back a few years, but they did such a magnificent job. I mean, it, it looked like they were about to be left for dead like five years ago and shifting to e-commerce and, and, and managing that. I mean, it's almost like the, the textbook case for any other brick and mortar retailers, like how to make that shift. Right. Um, they did a fantastic job there. Um, one of your shorts now is is Workday. Um, and this is probably like a company that maybe even our, some of our listeners own. Uh, we have not recommended it. But, you know, you look at this and at, at first glance, uh, you know, um, it's a SaaS stock. So it's growing, it's growing revenue by over 20%. You know, uh, SaaS software as a service, you know, human capital management software mostly. Uh, you know, it's growing revenue by over 20%. Um, you know, it's, it's a sticky platform, so it, it keeps its customers around it. You know, if you just looked at the balance sheet real quick as $2.6 billion of cash and cash equivalents on it. So why, why did you short this company? The problem for Workday, I think is the share-based compensation. I think they have an enormous issuance of share-based compensation. So there are, there are lots of, uh, there are lots of sort of statistical measures built into the way that I look at these things. And one of them is share issuance. So Historically, what has happened is that companies that buy back stock tend to generate returns in excess over the market return of about 4.5% a year. Companies that issue a lot of stock tend to underperform the market by about 2.5% a year. So that margin is about 7% between the best issuers or, or the biggest issuers and the best buyers back, the best repurchases. So that is built into my model and so what that does is it pushes uh, companies that issue a lot of stock and that then possess other criteria that I don't necessarily want to have in the portfolio. Now, it's entirely possible because the shorts tend to be much shorter term. So it's entirely possible that something like Workday, the short book, I don't really know what the short book's going to look like from quarter to quarter because it, it's very dependent on um, you know, what is going on over the preceding 12 months of that portfolio. 
the short portfolio has not done well since the the bounce in the market. It's under it's it's uh, done better than the market, so it's been a painful short through that period of time. I think that uh, for many of these companies, it's um, they're being they're being valued on a basis that uh, they're more mature than they actually are, and I think that some of them are going to take a long time to grow into their valuations. And I think that Workday is one that has outstripped its intrinsic value. Plus the share issuance means that if you're a holder, you're being diluted all the time. And so you actually own even less of that intrinsic value than, and certainly in five or 10 years time. Having said that, you know, I'm going to get about half of the shorts wrong in any given, like over a period of time, any given quarter, it can be the whole book or, or, and it just depends. But the reason I have the shorts in the book, um, as the spread closes, which it typically does, you can make a little bit of money in any given uh, quarter or over time. And then uh, in times like the first quarter where the market falls over very substantially, the shorts provide some ballast to the long book because they tend to go down more than the market. Um, so that's basically the strategy. So the, the, the shorts are sort of, um, I don't have anything necessarily against any given name that's in there. I think I have had Tesla in the past and Tesla can be, can feel a little bit personal because I think Tesla's just a plain old metal bender. Right, right, right. <laughs> Valued like it's software as a service. I wasn't even going to ask you uh, about Tesla. Um, but I do have you on and uh, I do want to ask you about Berkshire. You do have a long position in it. Um, you know, I know, I know you obviously uh, listened to, to Buffett recently. Uh, what do you think? Has, has, has he lost his touch or, <laughs> you know, like, uh, or is it a case of Berkshire just uh, being too large or, but you have a long position. So, so I guess why, why do you, why do you have a long position in Berkshire? Well, I think the, the thing that I'm always thinking about, the first thought that I always have is how am I going to lose in this position? What's the downside scenario here? And I think that for Berkshire, the downside scenario is, is higher than where it's trading right now. Like this is one of the strange things about Berkshire. It definitely suffers by the fact that it's a 400 and something billion dollar, $40 billion company. It suffers because it's a, an insurer and it suffers because it's a conglomerate and all of those things make it difficult to value or it's hard to see how much upside it's got from that point. On the plus side, it's got probably the best balance sheet of any company listed on the stock market. It's probably run by the greatest investor of this or several other generations, maybe ever. And the businesses inside it earn enormous returns on invested capital. It throws off enormous cash flow back to head office, which is then redeployed by this legendary investor. I don't think you necessarily need for him to be there. He's 90 years old. I hope he's around for a lot longer, but um, that's a consideration that I must consider. And he's got other guys in there, I think, who are, who are also very good investors who take over the reins. God forbid anything that should happen to him. But I think, um, I think it's, it's mispriced on, uh, on an, it's asymmetric. It's, there's almost no downside. There's pretty solid upside. I think that the, I think it can compound from here, from my purchase price between 13 to 15% a year for like five to 10 years. So I think it's, I think it's, incredibly undervalued and incredibly safe. And I, I'm, I'm more than happy to hold it. Were you surprised they didn't buy back more stock when, when they reported? Yeah, I was. Uh, 
and hearing Buffett's uh, explanation for it made my blood absolutely run cold because I, not, not because I think that he's, it's passed him by, but because I think that the, the underlying damage to the economy is probably a lot worse than most people realize. And certainly Buffett has a good overview because he's got the railway, he's insuring all of these businesses, he sells to a lot of businesses. So he's got this very good overview of what's happening. And it's certainly anytime I've spoken to anybody who's in private equity or who works with small and medium enterprise businesses, works with small business uh, or who's like trying to acquire the small businesses like Brent B. Shaw or right. any of those sort of gentlemen, you know, they are quite somber to negative on what we've gone through. And so I, I, I suspect that we haven't seen uh, the end of this thing. We haven't seen all of the dead bodies float to the surface yet. I kind of think we're, we're like big wave riding over a coral reef and uh, we're not kind of out through the breakers yet. And I need to see where we get to. And I think, and I'm sort of gathering that from Buffett and talking to these guys, I don't have any personal knowledge of this stuff. I'm sure, just sort sure. of reporting so what I think. Do you think it's more, he sees like long-term lasting or longer term lasting economic damage than like they just might have more, do you think he's worried at all about insurance liabilities they might have like with all their insurance companies or do you really think it's just like he he's a little bearish on the economic outlook? I don't think that it's because he's worried necessarily about business that they've written, uh, you know, business interruption type insurance. I don't think he's worried about that. I think that, and this is not my idea. This is just, I've seen this idea discussed that, you know, because they do the super cat writing. So, you know, what happens if it, if a hurricane comes up through New York while New York's suffering from coronavirus, that would be at the time that could have been, you know, incredibly damaging to New York sure. and probably that would have cost a lot of money for Berkshire. I don't think that's happened. I think New York's come out the other side of that. So that threat has probably gone away. I just think he runs it so that, you know, if it's sort of the, the thesis that I have too, where I, I always try to take the zero off the table. I don't want any, I don't want to hold anything that could be a zero. So I, and that sort of means that sometimes you take away some of the things that have more upside too, because anytime you invest, you got multiple potential paths that, that we could take. And we, we've only taken, you only live through one path, but there are others that you could take. And you want to make sure that in the worst case scenario, you still survive to invest another day at the other side. I think that's what he's doing. And I, and I like that. Right. Sure. Uh, Toby, just one last question before we wrap this conversation up. Uh, you know, one thing our seven investing advisors have been talking a lot about lately on Twitter and our podcast is teaching our kids about personal finance and investing. Uh, I know you're a parent. Uh, what, what tips would you give fellow parents about educating their children on financial matters? Yeah, that's a good question. I, it's something I'm. Are your kids going to know what a net net is by the time they graduate? like middle school or like, uh, like, I'm sorry, I interrupted, but just, yeah, tell, tell us what, what, what wisdom can you impart? No, no, you're fine. I, I was, I was just thinking whether I'd teach them about a net net or not. I might not give them that pain. I, I think <laughs> it's, it's something I think about a lot. I really don't have a great answer for it. Cause just because my kids are so young at the moment, they're six, five and two. I, I think that they need to learn. First of all, you need to learn to save. Once you save, then you learn to invest. And when you learn to invest, I think, that it, it would be good to be taught about investment as this is a business. Um, businesses generate returns over time. Your idea is to try and buy it at a discount to that and learn over time. So I think even just owning 
a little bit of stock and watching how it wiggles around is really helpful. I would love my kids to come and do what I do. Cause I think it's, I love doing what I do. It's fun. Um, I'm fully engaged when I do it, but I'm wary that, you know, anytime any parent kind of tries to push their kid to do something, they rebel from that. So I'm trying to find a really light touch way of doing it. So if anybody's got any good suggestions, then by all means, let me know. Right, right, right. Uh, well, that's great. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, let's wrap up our conversation there. Toby, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about acquirers funds and your other work? So I have a website called Acquirers Multiple, which has the screens for the stocks that we're talking about. And we put up posts of, uh, we put up blog posts of, put up all the podcasts, anything that we find that's interesting goes up there. Um, Acquirers Funds is my firm. And that's, I have a really simple post on the front page, just describing the kind of investing that we do. And then acquirersfund.com is the fund website. And the ticker for the fund is Zig. It's a long, short, deep value US equities, only 30 positions long to about 100 or 130% of the portfolio, 30 positions short to about 30% of the portfolio, if we can find all 30 positions. Um, over time, I hope that it works. Uh, it's, it's only been live for about a year, so we've only got a, a short trading history we've underperformed so far it's a little bit disappointing but it's sort of been the trend for value i think that the opportunity for value deep value in particular is very good at the moment and so uh at some stage that turns around and and, and i hope we start out performing oh that's great and you're on twitter too at green oh yeah twitter yes. yeah so I spend all day long on twitter i've got a terrible twitter addiction yeah at greenback <laughs> is it more is it more entertainment for you or is it more uh like uh investing assistance I think it's a phenomenal tool. I think it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's the best news feed you can possibly get. And then mixed into the news feed are some of the smartest guys. And I follow you on, on Twitter, among other people, some of the smartest investors around who give you that uh, almost immediate take on something that's happening. So this is what this smart investor who I respect thinks about this thing that I just saw happen. And then four hours later, it turns up on CNN or MSNBC or CNBC or something like that. But I already saw the event, saw all the smartest guys think about it. And it's a great way to promote. And, and, and if you, you can engage with just about anybody, I've got, you know, talk to very well-known investors all the time on that thing that I would just have had no way of getting in contact with because they're there and they're happy to chat. It's phenomenal. And I, I, I share your, your Twitter addiction. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good Twitterer. <laughs> I enjoy you. yours. I enjoy yours too. Uh, Tobias Carlisle, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for coming on today and discussing investing with us. Again, I'm Matthew Cochran, lead advisor with 7investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.